Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro Philosophic Lock with Eche Fatoum. This time we're tackling Jean Jacques Rousseau and the social contract. Welcome, Eche Fatoum. How are you doing, dude? Doing good. How about yourself? Pretty solid, considering 2020, which is a shit show. We're hanging in there, making strides, making gains, learning. And I'm healthy and I'm thankful for that. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's dive right into it. Um, Rousseau was born in Geneva, so Switzerland back then, now still. Um, it's the French part of Switzerland. And he and his parents had to leave Geneva when he was 10 years old and they went to Paris. So Rousseau grew up in two different worlds, kind of. Um, On one side, there's the Protestant Geneva, which was um, really strict on rules. There was no public drinking, for example. There was like the it it was completely different to the at the time Catholic uh, Paris. So Rousseau had this view on how a more developed society, which is to say the Paris at the time, was quite different from what he was uh, used to back in Geneva. And he saw that the modernization and the way people were living was not necessarily to their benefit. So he felt like that we should take a step back from um, trying to develop and modernize society and go back to the kind of free will we had when we were more in line with nature. One thing that jumps out at me with this too is that he's kind of pulling a bad example. I think Paris has been pretty messed up a few times and it was a front runner in terms of progress, but also you have problems with urbanization where you have a lot of homeless and unemployed and there are some pretty ugly parts of every city. And in addition, I think Parisians, when I've been in France, are a lot more pushy and rude and aggressive than people in many other parts of France. So if you just go through Paris, you may get a worse representation of what uh, people from France are like I had a really pleasant time in the south of France where people are a lot more smiley and friendly to you and they'll just have conversation about whatever yeah in my experience this is pretty common that sea life is just much more hectic and it's like there's so many people that people don't know their neighbors uh, necessarily so there's a bunch, hmm. just a bunch of people all the time and you don't know who's who. Well, in a smaller community, kind of everyone knows everyone. So you have a, a lot bigger of an incentive to get along and to, to be social. Hmm. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody calls you friend. It's a country song from the U.S. You don't need an invitation. Take off your shoes. Come on in. 
In the country, it's more local and trusting, I think, of other people. There's something called the Seattle freeze here where people are very cold to you. Sometimes someone will walk by and they don't even connect with you visually in the sense where you can question your own existence. It's pretty powerful. And if you go to a lot of other places, people look at you, make eye contact and smile. So it's a pretty wide range of just cultural custom based on the area. So did you grow up in the city or in rural parts? Suburbs mostly. Which I would say are comparatively more trusting areas. It's also like just better groomed. People are more spaced out. They've got houses and yards and that kind of thing. So relatively pleasant upbringing. I felt safe in my neighborhoods and stuff growing up. I went to cities sometimes, but we never lived like downtown. Um, were you close to Austin or did you move there later? I moved there later. I was so, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. All right. Yeah, so for me growing up, I grew up in a town that had 300, 300 inhabitants, so quite small. I had to go to school in another town, had to ride my bicycle for about a mile. And the closest city to me was about half an hour away and was, I want to say, 30,000 people. Uh, so everything quite rural because 30,000 people, I think you wouldn't even consider that a city in the US. Town, maybe. Yeah. Everything's a lot smaller in Switzerland. Except for the mountains, they're quite huge. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, Rousseau, in terms of the times uh, he lived, um, he was in between or after Hobbes and Locke. So we're already in a time where um, England has gotten rid of their king and started their um, constitutional monarchy and then reinstituted um, the son of the former king as a new king, but with checks and balances on him. But he is before Hobbes, uh, before Bentham and Mill, which we talked about last time. So it's in between. So he lived during the 18th century. He was born in, uh, what was it? 1712 and died in 1778. So right in the middle of the century. Yeah. And he was heavily influenced or he heavily um, drew upon the works of Hobbes and Locke um, to criticize them and what he thought they were getting wrong. And the idea of making a society and having a society that works for Hobbes was based on we give up our freedom in order for protection. And this was something that just didn't go well for Rousseau. He thought like, well, protection is not enough. He thought that 
you only subjugate yourself to a system where the system does what you want it to do. Which getting protection is nice, but just being protected doesn't mean that you get what you want out of a political system. It's a similar but not as extreme um, difference to Locke. Locke was more in line with um, Rousseau than Hobbes was. Basically, in Hobbes, you, as long as you were protected, anyone could be your, your ruler. While for Locke, they had to be um, some consensus on what a ruler is able to do. And for Rousseau, he was against rulers at all, and he thought that it should be the will of the people. And maybe you have someone that kind of has an overlook over what is the will of the people, but not someone that has authority to act on their own will, but only on the will of the people. So in other words, it's a idealized form of what we now have uh, in terms of democracy, where the elected people would only act out of the um, common will, not so what they want themselves, which, as it turned out, isn't as easy. Yep. I think it's pretty easy to make some ideas for how government should be done, but it ends up being a lot more messy. And there are so many natural forces that make things more corrupt just based on opportunity it's a space where there is power in play and some people will try to exploit that to their own advantage regardless of what your system is yeah the problem as i see it is we're putting incentives out there incentives nowadays mostly being money and the incentives don't incentivize good behavior necessarily so it's just as easy, at times even easier to make money in a way that is not necessarily quote-unquote good. So as long as there's incentives on bad behavior, people will behave badly. And it's not something that we can change necessarily, but it's something that we could at least try to shift in other directions. And we're doing so ever so slightly over time. A uh, good example here is a company making a product and polluting the water. So there's, as long as there's no disincentive to pollute the water and there's more money to be made um, because it costs a bunch of money to get uh, that water treated. So as long as there's no incentive to do that, they'll be happily making more money because they don't really care whether or not the water is polluted as long as they're not affected. Mm -hmm. So putting incentives is, in my opinion, a really good way to go. So making things cheaper that are quote-unquote good, making things more expensive that are quote-unquote bad. But it's difficult to do because we don't necessarily see through what will be good or bad in the long run. Yeah, the long run, I think, is the really difficult part to convey as well when you're talking about things like pollution, where the 
brunt of the negative effects of pollution are going to hit later generations harder than they're going to hit us. So it's pretty hard to motivate a lot of people to make efforts in that direction, like really fight for change on certain fronts when you're really not going to see either the positive benefits of that change or the negatives of if it doesn't change. Yeah. A good example for this would be the change we had in light bulb technology. So we started to realize that we use up a lot of energy, which is wasted with the old kind of light bulbs that we were using. And we thought, well, we'll put more efficient light bulbs into houses. So we'll use up less energy, which is a good incentive. It's a good idea. But they later on realized that the waste that these light bulbs produce is a lot more problematic than the waste the older light bulbs produced. We created a new problem with the solution we came up with. And this is quite common for almost every kind of change we're implementing over time. What are the costs? What are the benefits? Is it worth the switch? There was a issue that people have been having regarding phasing out certain forms of energy in favor of clean energy. Uh, this came up as a topic during the election because a lot of areas voted red when you might think they would normally vote for blue. But one of the reasons for it was the coal industry, say, for example, in West Virginia, is a major part of just the economy of the region. And if a lot of people, even like say a huge percentage of the population works in the coal industry, would they vote themselves out of a job? Because if the left is saying coal is bad, we need to work on clean energy alternatives, what happens to the workers who do coal stuff? So they feel like they have to vote for whichever party is going to keep their industry afloat, even if maybe for the earth, that's not the long-term best solution. Uh, or even just for other like social reasons, they might prefer to vote a different way. But again, like voting yourself out of a job is a really big ask. Yeah, I think the big question there is whether or not you have institution that would um, enable you to learn a new trade and you have the financial security, even though you're out of a job temporarily. So this kind of uh, institutions would make it easier for you to um, be safe, even though you're voting yourself out of the job. Yeah, it would be cool if there was a way that it bridged the gap of you're an energy worker and we're going to respect that. So as we have these job openings in some kind of clean energy department, maybe it's a hydroelectric power plant, maybe it's solar stuff. Uh, we recognize that you've been working hard at a profession that is basically going to be rendered obsolete. And you matter because you're part of the citizenry and we believe that you can learn a new skill. So that would take a lot of work grabbing those people and then trying to plug them into another profession. I don't know if there's precedent for that. Um, That's probably happened in the past. Most definitely is. I can't really think of an example in the US, but with states that are more social, like uh, Northern Europe, uh, Switzerland, Germany, there's um, really good unemployment insurance and 
for the most part, you get unemployment insurance if you're out of the job and either looking for a new job in the same field actively or you're actively uh, working towards schooling yourself in a different field. Mm. So they, they really putting the incentive on keeping people in the workforce, but not forcing them into a specific field. So you're free to choose something else that you want to pursue and you still get the benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for Rousseau, as he saw modern society, he saw that it was, um, he saw modern society as a moral decay of mankind. Um, and the way he put it is that we, in the natural state, there were two concerns for um, people. It's their uh, sense of self-preservation and it's pity. So we, we want to um, make sure that we survive ourselves, but we also have pity for other people, which is quite the contrast to Hobbes' model where the natural state was just war of all against all. And both of these concepts are idealized version. They're not, um, they don't, they didn't know how life was before we had society. No one does. Um, but they idealized this version in order to, to make a point. And I guess the reality is somewhere in between. So when there was no society, life was neither brutish and violent, nor was it this, I'm just looking for myself as well as pity for each other. There were different kinds of people and they interacted differently with the world. So we're, we're somewhere in between the two systems. But based on what you're coming from, you make different assumptions about what we should do now as a society. And we also see this um, difference in ideas when we talked about Confucius. So Confucius was very much in line with Hobbes, thinking that man needs to be, um, there ought to be someone that puts man into line in order for them to follow the rules. Well, Mencius was thinking that man is inherently good. And we just need ways to make them even more good. Basically, what we talked about before in terms of incentives. And he had a really nice example for this. I think better than what Rousseau said. So Mencius in the argument about whether um, human nature is good or bad said, well, imagine you're walking um, past a pond and you see a kid drowning in there. There's almost no one that would not jump into the pond in order to, to try to rescue that kid. And he said, we, we don't know who the kid is. We don't know um, if we'll get any benefit from saving the kid, but we do so out of our pity for them. We do so because we know it's the right thing to do. So therefore, there must be an inherent goodness in people. We look out for others and we disregard our own needs because we might want not want to take a bath at that time, but we still rescue the kid. Mm. 
I would be curious about some math on that. That sounds like something you could do a study of. Like how many people would actually rescue the kid? Yeah. Because some uh, of it's going to depend on just swimming confidence as well. If it's a deep pond and the person can't swim, well, they could jump in and try, but they could also drown along with them. You've also got other different variables and factors. There's stuff like the bystander effect, which would be interesting. This is kind of making the study more convoluted, but sometimes there's a crisis unfolding and there are multiple witnesses to it and they all kind of freeze thinking that someone else is going to take care of it. So the people are good, people are bad. People are mixed bags. Yeah. And, and the goodness is a choice and people make different choices over time. We make choices based on incomplete information. We have different moods. Some days we may be feeling in a kind of heroic risk-seeking mood. And we see the drowning kid and we jump in real fast, faster than anybody else. Other days, maybe you're doubting your swimming ability. Sometimes you just don't feel like getting wet. <laughs> My dad saved me once when I was in a deep end of a pool. I didn't realize how deep it was. It was very briefly terrifying. And then suddenly I was thrown out of the pool. Thanks, Dad. Uh, water can be quite scary. Um, I worked as a lifeguard for a year and a half and only had to make one save because it was a natatorium. So it's where swim teams trained for the most part. So it's like really good swimmers that aren't going to drown too often. But they also had swim lesson classes for kids and someone went down. Yeah, I have a certification as a, um, I'm not sure how it's called, life-saving swim, however, but I never had to use it. Lifeguard. Is it lifeguard? Yeah, lifeguard. Yeah, so we get to something interesting here in Rousseau's um, formulation about why modern man is um, decadent and why um, a more savage state of mind would be better. And it kind of goes into the statistics you wanted to do about how or if or if not we save people. Hmm. So for Rousseau... Um, there was self-love and pity, which was the initial, the natural state of people. So you do things out of self-love or you do things out of um, pity for others. The self-love he called amour de soi. And he contrasted this to amour propre, which is the more modern kind of self-love, which for him wasn't based on our own needs and our own intuition on what we think is good or bad, but more so on a reflection of other people. So for he, for him, the amour propre, the more modern version of self-love was um, based on validations of others. 
more so mm-hmm. than our own validations. So in terms of the um, bystander effect, I think the other question would be if you have a, a couple of people um, standing on the side of the pond looking, um, are you rescuing the kid because you want to rescue him or are you rescuing because you will look good in the eyes of the others? Mm, yeah, people definitely behave better with observers present. At least that is my suspicion. I feel like I perform way better with an audience for both like fitness. I think fitness is the biggest one for me, but also accountability is pretty big. Just being on good behavior and keeping to your principles because as neuro, I have some clear principles I've established of what I'm about and I could betray those principles in private. That would be unfortunate. If I betrayed those principles live in front of an audience, that's me like shifting my narrative and being inconsistent. <laughs> so I have more reasons to be good. So thanks, lovely audience, for just being there and making sure I don't go astray. <laughs> yeah, we talked about the Ring of uh, Gyges. Did we? Where um, the thought experiment of Plato, where you had the ring that would make you uh, invisible, and mm. whether or not you should behave morally if there's no fear of consequences. Plato argued that it'd be stupid to act morally when there's no consequences. Just do as you please. <laughs> Have a good one. Enjoy your invisibility bracelet or ring. But in contrast to that, since we don't have that ring and there are other people watching, we probably should act morally um, because there are consequences to our behavior. Even though um, people might believe that through the anonymity of the internet, for example, they're free of consequence. And this might be the case, but is not necessarily so. Oh, someone brought up the basilisk. I hope you're helping building it. <laughs> That's the thing that it'll kill everybody if you don't help in building it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, glorious basilisk. We dutifully create you so that we are not destroyed. Yeah. So from this idea that we're, um, that society changes what we want, how we behave, comes his most famous quote. And this is the start of the social contract. Here he states, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. Hmm. You think you're free, but you're not. Oh no. Exactly. And so what he means by freedom here is really important and what he means to be a slave as well. So there's two other quotes that kind of um, give you a sense of what he's talking about. Freedom is the power to choose your own chains. So he's not saying that we will be without chains. As long as we're living in a society, there will always be things we have to do, um, ways we have to behave in that will not be to our liking. 
But if we want freedom, we want to be able to choose where we put ourselves in chains and where not. So he also said, I prefer liberty with danger than peace with slavery. So we're choosing our own chains, but that also means that there will be some freedoms that will be dangerous to us. So uh, a good example would be here, the, the freedom to own weapons. So there's some inherent danger within people owning weapons. But if we want um, the freedom to, for people to do that, we have to live with the consequences. He sounds kind of libertarian. He is. Very much so. My parents actually made a major life choice in that direction of wanting fewer restrictions on themselves and more freedom, but also uh, greater isolation and risk to yourself. So they got a place in South Dakota and culturally speaking and just like population density wise it's very different from being in the Seattle area Seattle is super dense uh, it's very environmentally conscious so you have to get a lot of different permits and licenses for all the different stuff you want to do even if you technically own the property there are way more rules and restrictions uh, it's more progressive and stuff and it's way less religious and uh, generally colder culturally speaking south dakota is a lot more warm and friendly more of a cult, uh, country kind of atmosphere but if you're in the middle of nowhere and you have a problem maybe your neighbor helps you otherwise it just falls to you you can't really get help your place breaks there's no landlord you're just on your property in the middle of nowhere mountain lion shows up you're gonna have to handle that there's a bear have to handle that it was refreshing. I went for a nice hike out there and it was one of the few times where I've actually felt a regular sense of danger because I'm directly in mountain lion territory by myself, very far away from other people. So it was just me and I brought an ax just for fun <laughs> and a phone to take some pictures, but I was hiking and then climbing on some of the rocks, got up pretty high and got some awesome views of things. But it's probably how some people feel walking around in cities where you feel a sense of danger if someone could jump you. Normally, I don't get that response, but there I did. So it, it sort of felt like being more heightened and being in that natural human state where things aren't groomed and curated to make sure it's made for humans. This is the wilderness. It's the rule of the jungle, pretty much. Yeah. How common is it for mountain lions to attack people? It's fairly rare. Uh, normally that would be if you mess with their young. They don't tend to fight stuff that is noisy and fights back. They like to eat deer. That's a pretty good a prey animal for them. Deer don't usually shout at them. So <laughs> the recommended procedure, if you do have a mountain lion, is to face them. Be really noisy and aggressive. Just be like, fuck you, fuck you. No, get back. Brah! And just like yelling at the very top of your lungs and backing away slowly. Uh, throwing rocks is cute. Making yourself look big is good because typically they're more of a pouncing predator where they're trying to get something either from the trees or from when they're not expecting it and just take it out in one blow. They don't usually go in for a face-to-face -face fight. 
like a bear would or something. So you can oftentimes just intimidate them and make the situation not worth the trouble. Because that's a big assessment for animals in the wild too, is maybe it could kill you if it came to a fight. But if you're that noisy and you're that big, they figure, ah, I could get injured. And if I was injured, everything's going to hurt and I'm not going to be as happy. Ah, I'll take a pass and I'll just go hunt what I normally hunt. Kind of like, is this really worth the struggle? Hmm. No, not really. This guy seems pretty noisy and he's got really wild, crazy hair. (laughs) We don't have any dangerous animals here in Switzerland. I think we had some wolves coming back, but I don't think there ever was a case where they attacked people. They're pretty dangerous to livestock, though. Especially sheep. Yeah, I've heard wolves aren't really that aggressive toward humans. They usually try to steer really clear. They get a bad rap in like childhood or children's stories and stuff, big bad wolf. But relative to, say, wild boars and hippos and stuff, wolves are relatively nice. Don't go pet them, people. I'm not saying that. (laughs) Oh, my God, a wolf. He's so fluffy. I want to pet it. You hear about the guy who he died because he tried to go up to a bear and take a selfie with it. Come on, dude. Uh, that's probably the Darwin Award right there. Yep. Um, Darwin Award, for those who are not familiar with it, it's you get awarded for taking yourself out of the gene pool because you acted so stupidly. <laughs> it's not an award you should seek out. No, definitely not. Um... Yeah, when I was in the jungle in Brazil uh, or Costa Rica, for example, the animal I was most scared of were snakes. So we usually stumped everywhere we went. So for them to hear us coming and just get out of the way. But other than that, I don't have any experience with wild animals per se. Oh, well, my wife met a bear in Japan once while snowboarding, but I think they were equally scared of each other. Mm. I met a coyote in Texas that was about 10, 8 to 10 meters from me, way closer than they normally would be. But that was pretty exciting. Definitely increased my heart rate, but I was bigger than the creature, so I wasn't really scared per se, and I have... Uh, a strong feeling that the coyote had a, a similar sense of, hey, that's a pretty big dude. Let's just pass on. So we just passed each other. It was maybe three in the morning. I was training for marathon. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's we can get away from conflict with animals because we're we have the means to scare them off and they don't really have the incentives to attack us. Mm-hmm. humans are pretty wild you don't know what's going to happen if you attack one of them mm-hmm. I think the only animals that really are not scared of us are birds they're crazy like geese or swans they don't care 
I have a lot of ravens where I live here. It's a really awesome bird. They usually travel in pairs. They have the color scheme of a crow. They're just black, but they're huge. It's probably like the size of three crows or more put together. Very smart. If you mess with them, they'll remember it forever, and they'll send their other bird friends to attack you. <laughs> I think there was a study where there was something like a guy who fucked with the local birds, and he left and then came back to that city, and they just attacked him. <laughs> I still remember this guy. Yeah, I don't think we have a good understanding of the mental capacity of um non-human animals because we lack the means to communicate with them and to really understand what's going on in their mind mm -hmm. so we make assumptions based on what we see in everyday life but it's i think we're, we're underestimating most animals and their capacities to rousseau's point about the savage state of humanity being better uh, there is a conversation that we touched on before about the decline in violence over the course of human history and how his stance there in the sense of safety per capita is pretty incorrect. I guess he would probably favor the freedom and the danger, even if that means you're probably going to die. But just for the format of two hunter-gatherer villages that are next to each other by, say, some kilometers the chances of you getting shot with an arrow when you went out of the tent to take a wee in the morning were pretty high because scarcity of resources. They didn't have farms and agriculture and all the different grains and breads and rice and things like this. So a lot more competitive. And then a lot of times if there was violence between one tribe and the other, it would just be a series of reprisals back and forth. So based on the state of nature, that was pretty shitty. A lot of different hominid species also just fought each other until they ceased to exist or assimilated them by reproduction and stuff. That's pretty wild. We see a lot more documented violence now with video camera technology. We can film something really brutal that's happening and pretty much relive it by seeing it. Uh, whereas before, violence was passed either through writing it down or word of mouth, which is less intense to convey. So we have greater visibility of the violence in the world per person. It's less violent than it's ever been. But it's pretty gross if you look at all the, the bad news. Plenty of bad news to browse. You won't run out. Yeah. And it's also it's more lucrative to report on the bad news and people will be more drawn into the TV set if you show something horrible than you show how beautifully the flowers are growing this spring. Mm -hmm. So that there is quote unquote value to the more brutish nature of people than there is to people doing good things. Mm -hmm. And we're more drawn in. I think there's has to do with um we we want to keep ourselves safe uh, as uh, rousseau uh, pointed out and in order to be safe we need to know the world around us and what we ought to be scared of mm -hmm. and 
for us to understand what we ought to be scared of, we were looking at examples. We were looking at or listening to stories of others where they, they met a wolf or they met a bear in the, the forest. And we take away why we should be scared of a bear. And now we have all these stories why we should be scared of these people or why we should be scared of the other people. And you can only feel safe with, quote unquote, your people. And it's quite, um, it, it gives you this sense of the fear of the other, uh, xenophobia, which is might have some reason to it, but it's overestimated. And we see everyone that is different as potentially dangerous, which is just not the case. Hmm. So that there might be um, people that are different to you that are bad. There's also people that are um, the same as you that are bad. There will always be bad people as well as there are good people. And on the average, there are a lot more good people than there are bad people. Uh, in order to learn that, you have to go outside and meet people rather than listening to your TV. So for Rousseau, this distinction between the uh, traditional self-love and the modern self-love is what um, he thought of as corrupting people and making us um, commit to a social contract that we're not necessarily agreeing with. So for him, there was a focus on education that we should get people more to their natural state and bring education to a point where we were better understanding not just the world around us, but mostly ourselves and our own desires, our own um, will to do things. Um, what we It was about um, enabling the inherent ability in the individual. So it was a very individualist approach towards education that he was preaching. So he said, we are born weak, we need strength. Helpless, we need aid. Foolish, we need reason. All that we lack at birth, all that we need when we come to man's estate is the gift of education. So when we were born, we lack a lot of traits that we need. And in order to get those traits, we need to be educated. But not educated, and it was done at the time, but much more on a... Um, practical aspect of the education um we should not teach children street smart not book smart um yes kind of um we should not teach children the sciences but give them a taste for them so we we have to emphasize the practical aspect of learning which is quite in line with what confucius was teaching roughly two thousand years earlier um, that it's it's nice to know what is good, but in order to really know what is good, you have to act that way. You have to um, make practice what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And another really nice quote. I think you've um, you've quoted this already at some point. Uh, there are four sides to a story. Your side, their side, the truth, and what really happened. What's the difference between the truth and what really happened? I'm not sure. 
uh, I think the truth here is the um, capital T truth. Uh, no, uh, lower T truth. Um, so it's your side and their side are too um, too subjective um, state of uh, affairs. So it's how I tell the story or how they would tell the story. The truth would be uh, an objective view on it. And what really happened would be what's outside of interpretation, if that makes sense. Mm. So e even an objective view on something is an interpretation of it. Well, what really happened is just um, like a chain of physical effects. Mm. Uh, that that's my interpretation. I didn't look into this quote enough to tell you what he meant by this or what really happened. <laughs> yeah, so for Rousseau, he thought it as really important that we have this individualist approach towards educating our young for them to be good citizens, to be good people. So they need to be in line with what they want, not what they want as a reflection of other people. So again, the distinction between the amour de soi and the amour propre. And this is really important for him because the social contract can only work if we're um, giving up our rights for what we think to be the right thing to do, not because what we think the right to be uh, doing based on what others tell us. So it needs to be inherent, which is really, really important. And there's a, a really nice lesson in there uh, for nowadays as well, I think, where we, I think we're somewhere in between these two types of self-love. We got um, more back to the amour de soi, as he called it, where we we're better at listening to ourselves, the individualist approach where we um, we don't necessarily feel like we have to conform with social rules, but we're still very much encased within those social rules. And to, to figure out for ourselves what we really want if there was no one there judging us is a, a really nice task. And it's a very important part of self-development, in my opinion. It's not that you should just listen to what you yourself think is right and then act on that, but have a sense of that and then putting it into the social context again. The first one that's coming to mind is a lot of times people have who they ought to be imposed upon them by their parents. I expect you to be this kind of a person. When you grow up, sometimes that means a career is suggested or pushed by professional the parents, soccer but... player. Yeah, <laughs> doctor, lawyer. You should yeah. be this. You should be that. You should be an engineer. You should get this well-paying job. Sort of the parent wishing the child well, but also wanting the child to be fitting in their ideal vision of what their children should be like. Which sometimes it can be pretty close to the mark and it ends up being encouragement other times it's way off and 
it's really difficult for the child to feel like they're valued because they're not the ideal child for what the parent wanted. Yeah, I mentioned that to be one of the hardest part um, in raising a child is to guide them on a good way, but don't do it in a sense that where you impose certain things on them other than the necessarily rules to kind of live in a society, but where you leave them with enough free will to pursue their interests. Yeah, it's difficult. I don't think that there is a, a one size um, fits them all uh, way to do that yet. And there probably yeah, never really, will be. Really complex because the parents also know more about how the world works than the child does. And a lot of professions and career paths and things get romanticized and it's not quite what you think it is. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like what it means to be a streamer and what people think that is in terms of a daily job. Usually it's boiled down to the best parts, which is you get to play video games a lot. You get to play the games you love. That's awesome. And people pay you for it. What? Dream job. What they don't realize is you're against hundreds of thousands of other people who can all stream to the same platform and you're competing for viewership and revenue with them in real time. You need to make big plays, valuable moments for the viewers. Otherwise, they're going to go somewhere else. The pressure is on. Good luck. Yeah, I think a good exercise there is thinking of something like streaming, not in terms of what they doing as they get to play video games, but rather they have to play video games. And if you're forced to play video games, all of a sudden they're not as fun anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it's also with, you have to read this book. Oh no, I'm not going to do that. But if you want to read the book, it's an enjoyable thing. So it's uh, um, having to do something sets a different set of expectations and you're uh, a lot more resistant to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, most of the things are not as fun anymore if you have to do them. But you can practice finding joy in the work of things that might be tedious, doing little mental tricks of framing stuff. There's an example that every week I get on one of my WoW characters and I farm soul shards so that I can summon people to the raid. It's very tedious. It doesn't really require that much skill. It's like a, a work thing, but it helps the raids to run smoothly. So instead of making it feel like homework or something that I must do every week, I do a gratitude exercise where every shard that I get is for one person who's going to show up and attend the raid. And if they didn't show up, we couldn't do the content. So I'm thankful for them that I have the opportunity to farm for those shards because they show up. Thanks, fam. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to uh, find love in something you're already doing than to uh, premeditate what you would love. So just mm -hmm. thinking about what you think you'd love doing and then doing that and realizing, well, this kind of sucks. It's pretty difficult just to, to figure out what you want to do, especially if you're just doing it theoretically, not practically. But if you already have a job and you might not like it every day, you might not like it most days, but 
it's it's easier to find something enjoyable in there than just premeditate what you would rather do. Mm-hmm. That's why choosing a major in university is really hard. Sometimes yeah. stuff starts out pretty fun and then it ends up being a lot less enjoyable later on. How could you have known that? I guess you could ask people. Maybe you're different. Who knows? It's complex. Good luck. I think one important uh, thing there is that we tend to think of um, choices as being very important and being very limiting going forward. So if I choose to major in law, for example, I think I'll be spending the rest of my uh, days uh, practicing law. But this is not the case, or not anymore at least. So the choices you make, I don't want to say they're not important, but they're not as final as you would think. It's just if you realize you don't like it, choose another subject, do something else. Try to find something that you do enjoy and do it in a practical manner, more so than just thinking about it. Yeah, life And this like goes a, for a lot of choices. It feels like a best guess much of the time. You can't know completely that that's the correct choice. But if you have 10 choices in front of you, got to pick one based on the information that you have, based on your intuition and your instincts. It's okay to not know. Yeah. Uh, there's two important things there. One is that not deciding is a decision in and of itself where you um, get to live life passively. So by not deciding, you just let the world happen and you take uh, agency from yourself. So if you have a decision in front of you, it's, in my opinion, better to decide and might pick the wrong side than just letting fate choose for you. Because then you lost agency, you, you won't have, um, you, you can't go back and change the decision. But since you don't have the agency for it, it's just what happened. But if you see A and B, you choose B, you realize B was a shitty decision, you will do better next time. You, you improve over making decisions. And by not making decisions, you will never improve at making decisions. And it's difficult to choose no matter what it is, but to you have to do it actively in order to get better at it. If you just sit passively and wait for the decision to be made by someone else, you will never be good at making decisions. And it will always feel bad. Or that's just my experience with it. Decisiveness is a skill. And the other thing, which is a more modern concept, is opportunity cost. I think we've talked about this before. It's a concept in economics where you um, try to evaluate what it would cost you if you pick A instead of B what you're kind of missing out on with B. So a good example there is if you are lucky enough to have um, the choice between two potential mates and you decide not to choose because you don't know what you're missing out on. So the effect is you're missing out on both or you pick one but constantly think about the other and if you 
take a decision, do it wholeheartedly and stick with it and don't think about what would have been because you have no clue what would have been. It's we we don't have a mind to assess that. We just make up scenarios and we usually um romanticize about the other uh scenario, uh, especially when something is going wrong if with the decision that we stuck with. And this gives a very unrealistic view on how things would have been otherwise. The grass is greener on the other side. Or so you think. Um, it, most of the time is because horses as well as cattle, they just eat all the grass and then it, it looks um, a bit less green because they ate more. But it's not necessarily the better grass on the other side. It just looks better. Also, it, it belongs to someone else and you get into legal trouble if you let them eat that grass. <laughs> That's a social contract issue. So we want people to get back to to be in line with what they want and what they're be told to want in order for them to um, commit to a social contract that they're agreeing with and the social contract should be not based on the divine right of kings or an absolute power of the sovereign so Hobbes argued in line with the monarchy at the time that there is or there can be a divine right of kings if the king is doing the right thing keeping you safe that is in Hobbes's example because People, as he saw it, were always just infighting if you don't have someone to keep them in check. And for Locke, there was um, absolute power of the sovereign. So it was a institution to pe keep people safe. It was no one person that would kind of spearhead the whole thing. It had to be consensus to be reached, but it was consensus on a much smaller part than it was for Rousseau, who thought that it's the common will of the people that needs to come together in order to make a social contract that will work for everyone. The concept he used there um, is... Um, what is it called? The common will. So we need to come together as a society and create a common will. So that means that everyone is on the same page of what we want society for and what we want society to achieve. This sounds good if you're not looking at it too closely. So if you have a society that all works towards the same goal, doesn't necessarily mean that that goal is good. So this could be um, a regime and really pushing people um, towards doing something that they don't really want. It could be the common will if you root out everyone that will someone else, uh, something else. So Rousseau's social contract sounds good as a, a thought experiment, but when you're looking at it closely, it kind of falls apart. But there's something to be learned here, and that is that we want society to have a goal. 
we want to be coming together as a society or as a um, World of Warcraft clan, for that example, and know what we're working towards. And this is something that is really, really different nowadays. Uh, you probably can uh, talk about this in terms of your wow experience and how difficult it is to get people on the same page on what you want the clan to be. Yep, agreeing on vision is something that's pretty tricky to do because people have different goals. Uh, that was a, a major falling out that we had with two of our officers who they worked really hard and they were good at what they did. They played the game well, but they wanted the guild to be a different kind of guild than uh, our vision dictated. We were looking for a very inclusive, supportive friendly atmosphere where it's about the player it's not about the result in the fight uh, but they saw it the other way of we needed to get the best performers that we could and if someone is underperforming fuck them they can go somewhere else and we couldn't find common ground in that so we ended up removing them from the team so finding a shared vision is pretty tough to do and for some people they just won't agree on that the thing with society, too, is it's so vast that you can oftentimes find a place that fits with your ideals. Giving the example of Seattle versus South Dakota, maybe you do want more freedom and less security, and you'll take the risk, and that's fine. Other people, they prefer the security. Different countries, different places. Find what suits you. Yeah. There's this concept of freedom that you're always free to um, vote with your feet. So if you don't like it here, you might as well go somewhere else, which works to some degree. It's pretty difficult for some people to leave the regime they're in, North Korea being a good example. And there's also really harsh economical um realities about having to travel someplace else and you might not be able to do that as well as getting stopped at the border and being told that you're not welcome here whenever i go into a different country i always feel very examined very suspicious of me i think for me one of the nicest countries to go into was the u.s because normally you just um, get to ask where you're from, um, what you want to do here, and how long you're going to stay. And I had a really nice um, chat with the immigration officer uh, in the US where he talked about our surfboards and where we want to go surf. <laughs> nice. And was it re really contrary to how I imagined it would go? Yeah, when I return to the U.S., it's always very quick welcome home kind of a thing. When I went to Canada, it was very suspicious. What does this American bring into our country? Do you have any seeds or nuts or poisons or explosives? No. What's this bag of almonds here? Oh, shit. <laughs> Um, Australia has really harsh restrictions on what kind of 
I th don't think you can bring any agricultural product to Australia and they make some, um, they have these really cute beagles at the airport that were sniffing luggage and looking for contraband. Mm -hmm. Send in the cute animals. <laughs> yeah, so that common will is problematic in a sense because you need all people to be on the same page and as you can see in the us nowadays there seem to be two different pages and all that's happening politically is like we're looking at one page or the other so there's less moving forward in a direction that everyone agrees with but like two sides growing further apart over time and I'm not saying this is good or bad, but it's definitely not what Rousseau had in mind. For him, there needs to be one common goal. So what he would probably suggest for the US would be to split up into two different countries where there's one side that could do their page of the book and the other side that could do their page of the book. And then people are free to choose which side they want to help. which would be an interesting experiment for the US, but I'm not suggesting uh, states to succeed from the union. Yeah, presently the biggest divide when I was looking at the map for voting in the election was urban versus rural. It seems like the needs of urban people, the wants are pretty different from what rural people need and want. Because a lot of the major expensive policies that require increasing taxes are going to benefit people in the cities more than they benefit uh, people out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, great. There's this pro this program that is going to help inner city stuff. Well, I'm not there, so hope you enjoy it. There was a electoral anomaly that happened in Switzerland in, during the last election. So we have the different regions voting and then it's basically it's a popular vote. And the popular vote was won by quite a lot, but it's also looked on the basis of each state, whether or not they voted yes or no. And then you need to have the majority of states agreeing as well. So in the case, it was the uh, law about um, corporate responsibility we talked about last time as well. And a majority of people voted for it, but less than half of the states voted for it. So we didn't, like the vote didn't bend through. And this only happens once every 70 years or so in Switzerland. But it's always quite interesting when it happens. And this, as you said, also shows the difference between rural and um, suburban or urban areas. So there be no responsibility for uh, companies in Switzerland going forward, as it used to be. Maybe not no, but not as much as we want it. Um, yeah, where were we? Ah, he, um, Rousseau had a nice example of the English and their freedom and how um, 
the sovereign that they voted for would give them some amount of freedom, but it's not what he had in mind. The English people believes itself to be free. It is gravely mistaken. It is free only during election of members of parliament. As soon as the members are elected, the people is enslaved. It is nothing. In the brief moment of its freedom, the English people make such a use of that freedom that it deserves to lose it. So his argument here is with the um, representative nature of the English chamber at the time were only free during the time of electing those members. And then again, we give up all our freedom. And since we agree to this social contract, we might as well deserve to give up our freedom. Uh, there is some truth to this. It's a rather bleak view on politics. I don't think it's it's the kind of argument you hear when you're um, looking for a justification on why you didn't go vote because it doesn't make a difference and it's the only freedom I have. But psh, I don't really care who gets voted into office. But as I talked about, a friend of mine just got elected as head of our city. So if you have the right people and you know they're the right people, it's the right thing to vote for them. And if only the wrong people get elected, you have to look at whom you're voting for and whom other people are voting for. And what what's the driver behind it? What's the common will that gets those people elected and how to work on that? So I'm not saying that any candidate is good or bad, but they have different motivations and examining what they are and why they want to get elected and what they want to do is should be a bigger focus than just what the party program tells them to do especially in a two-party system because it, it it stands and falls with the individual more so than party lines wait you're saying that individuals in politics should not only be a puppet of the party I guess so. That's wild, dude. I didn't think it through. <laughs> that they should have discretion and individuality and personal goals? Oh, boy. Well, in, in terms of what Rousseau said, yes, but only insofar as they act with the common will, not their own will. Uh, the common will here probably is the party line, so it, it gets kind of fuzzy. Yeah, but this is the, the social contract as Rousseau saw it, where you, you, you enter into this contract because you see the benefit for yourself based on your own values, not the values you're given by society. So it's a free choice to enter. And the choice not to enter for you mean would mean to find a different society. So there's no opposition within um, his type of social contract that it's a clear direction society is going everyone that agrees with it will be part of it everyone that disagrees with it will not be a part of it um, yeah you can see how this could be problematic 
and it has been shown to be problematic. Um, Rousseau was a big influence in terms of ideology on the French Revolution. There's also some of his ideas that went into the um, American succession from England. And they not always only took his good ideas, but also his bad ideas. But it's, he was hugely influential on the, the revolutionary process at the time because he was talking against kings. He was talking against um, absolute power. And there was a lot of absolute power still going on. And you had to look towards someone that was arguing against that in order to, to find solutions. And looking as it is nowadays, I think we got rid of most structures of absolute power. There might be some governments that yield too much power in the view of their citizens, but not in the same absolute degree where you just stay in power indefinitely. Um, most um, presidencies are term-based. Um, most political system are made up by a bunch of different ideologies, a bunch of different ideas. And it's about finding common ground between them, not just the one direction everyone needs to go in. But I think there's good things to be taken away from Rousseau still. Uh, this is the idea of um, trying to find within yourself um, what you really want that is not a reflection of other people. And then there's the concept of the common will, where you can ask yourself, what do you want society to be about? And then you can find it within yourself to start working towards that. So I think his philosophy is really um, enabling for the individual to um, follow their own way and to make something out of themselves that is not necessarily within the norm. So it's really individualistic, which is something we see reflected in modern society. And it gives people the opportunity to um, start modeling the world after their liking in accordance with others. Be the change you want to see in the world. Exactly. I like the attitude. Uh, in capacity, it has more of the go get em mindset than the we must all serve the mighty government for it is what keeps us safe. That has its merits to it. However, your own like personal will and choice and freedoms and making sure things are good and fair and being able to take some risks and know you're taking risks just for your own ability to express yourself. Pretty cool. Does it have its downsides? Yes. Is it an important voice to represent in the dialogue about people, contracts, social stuff, and governments? Yeah. Yeah, as you said, with the danger of um, that are inherent with these kind of choices we make, the, the quote of, I prefer liberty with danger than peace with slavery, I think is really important that we, we always give up something if we want freedom in society. And to 
strike a good balance between them is really important. And it's something that we've been working on ever since. Uh, another interesting or noteworthy influence that Rousseau had was on the um, UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So these unalienable rights that people have, um, Locke was already talking about, Rousseau um, furthered this concept. And what we see in the Declaration of Human Rights that was written in the uh, years after the Second World War is a reflection on those values and what what kind of um, rights that we have that should not and cannot be taken away from someone. Sounds like that was quoted in the Declaration of Independence or something. The unable rights? Yeah. Yes. Nice. We believe men to be free and with some. Uh, we hold these truths rights. to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Some unalienable rights of their creator, or something or other. You see a problem with that statement? Mm. The creator. Mm, uh, Okay, that, that as well. Now, um, there was a push towards changing man to person because man could mean just man, no women. Oh, right. Yeah, there's that language bias that existed for pretty much all of written history until recently of where if it's, I think, meant to be gender neutral, they would just use the male pronouns for stuff. Yeah. It's kind of surreal thinking about when women's suffrage happened and when women got the right to vote and how on evolutionary timescales, all this technology stuff is very recent, but on the timescales of civilization, it's still very recent. Um, it was 1992 where the, when the last region of Switzerland had... Um, women voting forced upon them by the federal government. So 28 years. Hmm. Crazy to think about. Yep. Well, cool. What is next for philosophy? We did Rousseau. What does this lead us into? I know we have the Nietzsche impending. Um, I wanted to talk about the, a bit more of the historical circumstances that are kind of set up by the uh, Protestant Reformation. So we're going into the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And both of them are really important in terms of practical philosophy. And to kind of talk about those. And I was thinking, I'm not sure how well versed Agent Smith is on the topic of the American Revolution, but I guess a lot more so than I do. So maybe we could try to set up a talk between the three of us. Oh, a crossover episode, Velocity Clock and World Discussion. 
That sounds awesome. I don't know what his sleep schedule is. I could just ask him. We're just kind of in the Sunday routine and then I'm in the Thursday routine with you. Are you getting like tons of phone calls? Yeah, I'll have to take this real quick. Okay. <laughs> People need to call Eche Fatum, dude. He's like, no, I'm doing philosophy time. What? Philosophy time? What are you talking about? It's on a, a stream, a Twitch stream. Oh, is that like YouTube? My son has a YouTube channel. Well, I don't know if it's like that, but there's the audience of 200 people who are there right now. Yes, they're waiting for me on the phone. Okay. You like philosophy talk? Are we doing that often? We usually do this every other Thursday. In the evening time, if you're looking for ballpark, say midnight Pacific time. So when the Europeans are getting up, typically. Definitely off-peak hours, but that's when we're both available. It's his morning and my evening. On the other Thursdays, I'm doing D&D. &D. We have a 5e campaign. I play a barbarian. Pretty fun. Carl the Kenku, the barbarian. Biggest, thickest, biggest, thickest bird. And he's... Possessed by a demon, his village was getting attacked at one point, and there was a box that said, do not drink with the potions in it. And he figured they were probably forbidden and powerful and wanted to save the people, and he had one. And it put him into a rage. He did end up saving the people, but the witch doctor of his tribe decided that that was a too great of an offense so he was cast out and then he joined a couple other ruffians pig plays nigel who is a wizard he's kind of like a virgin superstar character where he's really isolated and nerdy but he's very book smart and then mendax the tiefling rogue is played by ash of cockeyed gaming and she is hilarious She's probably the most chaotic and maybe evil of the characters, but we're all between neutral good and chaotic good, I think. Welcome back. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, my wife got stranded on her way back home, so I'll have to pick her up afterwards. Um, yeah, we were talking about what we could do next. So yeah, that freeway episode i would find really interesting and do you want to reach out to agent smith and see if we can make that happen at some point yeah i can check his schedule and stuff it may be dicey with christmas season people are doing family stuff but i will see what his availability is like and we could do it on a what is it monday morning for me like his usual time spot slot uh doesn't have to be during the usual philosophy segment cool and yeah other than that we'll be talking about kant going forward which is a lecture that i'm not looking forward to we'll be talking about nietzsche will be yeah there's like at this point after the um protestant reformation 
philosophy or the Western canon of philosophy really went awire and there's so many things happening and so many interesting things and ideas to be talking about that we'll have um, materials for a lot of lectures to come. Well, thank you for coming on as usual. Helping us tackle the social contract, bit of a contrast to the Leviathan. Connecting with that savage individualism where we are free to pursue our aims and our goals unhindered by corrupt governments who just want to push us around and tell us not to do stuff. I hope you have excellent snowboarding, skiing on the amazing winter slopes and stuff. I've been working on a personal fitness project that isn't pushing my upper end of fitness. It's pushing the lower end where I'm trying to, when I wake up in the morning, go for a walk every day, regardless of nice. the weather, regardless of how I feel. If I feel high energy, sometimes it turns into a run, but I don't hold myself to running every day. And that's been huge for just getting outside. Seattle is very cozy in the winter. It's cloudy and it's raining a little when you get up. Your body just instinctively says, this is the time to stay in shelter. <laughs> when it's not that bad. You go outside, it's barely raining. Yeah, there's a little bit of precipitation coming down, but it's not that bad. And if you get your body moving, you heat up a little bit, and it's actually quite pleasant. So just getting the shoes on, getting suited up, foot out the door, and you'll be surprised at what you can do. And mainly I'm doing yeah. this just for the health of my joints and cardio and stuff because I've noticed that I have a very extreme uh, jolting shift of sitting all day or just standing stationary, which doesn't involve any movement. And then all of a sudden I'm using all my muscles to try to post a good time for a run. So I'm going from zero to 60 and I don't really have that middle gear, which is really important for just building up your baseline of strong ankles, strong knees, getting used to that rhythm. Humans are good at walking. One might even say we're evolutionarily adapted for it. And that's <laughs> a strong edge. Yeah. Yeah, what, what are you talking about in terms of the resistance you initially have to uh, set your foot out the door? It's the hardest part. And this goes for almost anything where the leap of faith you have to take in the beginning that you won't just die from the cold once you step outside mm -hmm. is the hardest part. And once you get going, it's a lot easier. And I think this is a really nice example of the practical aspect of doing things because it's easy to rationalize not going outside, but once you're already out, it's a lot easier. Hell yeah. You connect with your warrior spirit, but first to connect with your warrior spirit, you must tell the sloth spirit, which in yourself to go take a rest, leave me alone. I need to go do awesome stuff. Exactly. Cool. Thank you, sir, for coming on. I'm going to get some heck and rest. This has been a 10 hour stream. Hell yeah. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. Get some good rice and I'll see you in two weeks. This has been another episode of Floss O'Clock with Eche Fatou. GG and use your brain.